Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. This is a podcast from the Smart Material Collective, made by nerds, funded by the listeners. Is hair a material? Are biscuits a material? Are crystals a material? Is plastic a material? Is porridge a material? Can gases be a material? Are eggs a material? Is water a material? What do you call everything that isn't a material? <laughs> Sorry, I didn't mean to laugh at your question. And yet you continue to do so. <laughs> Hello and welcome back to Real Talk. I'm your host, Anna Pajajski, and this is the podcast which centres on conversations between art and science, but always with a focus on materials. This episode, for the first time, I was joined by not just one, but two guests in my studio. Julia Rowntree is an arts developer and fundraising consultant. For many years, she worked for a theatre festival, which you'll hear her refer to at the beginning of this episode. But she's also an amateur potter and is passionate about projects which encourage young people to work with their hands and engage with local communities. Duncan Hooson is a ceramic artist with extensive teaching experience as well as working as an artist in residence in schools and with the public in cross-arts initiatives. Together, they form the Clayground Collective, an organisation which digs into clay as a learning material and produces projects which encourage everyone to get their hands dirty with clay. They started by describing to me one of their key early projects which really sums up the Clayground Collective. We linked up with a school for profoundly deaf children, which was right next door to where I lived. And um, we did an experiment there, really, working with them and uh, doing this civic project. And then when I left the theatre festival and Duncan said, come on, I want to do I want to go all over the world digging clay. Mm -hmm. Will you raise money for it? Um, and I said no, uh, because I wasn't quite that ruthless. But yeah, <laughs> I, I don't. I don't think anybody would back that. But if we if we are addressing all sorts of other issues through an exploration of clay, mm -hmm. and we broaden the invitation to involve all kinds of people, then I'm interested. And so we develop. We went back to the deaf school, and Daryl Bedford, the art teacher there, was very courageous and said, "Yes, uh, we will take clay into every subject in the curriculum." And Whoa, that's uh, amazing. We'll do yeah. a public celebration and. Uh, that's how Clayground started and we set the company up in 2007 and that really was the the laboratory for 
experimentation for many other projects which we then extended uh, nationally. It was that opportunity to test bed if clay could be put into the curriculum into every subject. Mm. And because it's a, sec- it's a secondary school, um, as Julia mentioned, it's a deaf school, but it's also residential. So the students are there all week. And because of its size, it's only 200, 200 or so pupils, I think. Something like that, yeah. um, the head, you literally can collapse the curriculum. So you can build a curriculum as you go. Um, so what we were able to do there was really test the principles of, okay, can we put clay into every single subject? So can we put it into religious education, into into studies? Um, they had this incredible um, subject, emotional uh, sorry, emotion. I mean, it was like emotional design, but it was it was emotional studies. I think. Yeah, it was it. an opportunity for um, their students to talk through a material, um, and so clay was perfect for that. Um, and the things we discovered, obviously, through the science lessons, through geography, geology, um, clay was right at the heart of it. Even even into maths and about the kind of the process, the transformative process that clay goes through, just from wet. Um, and this transformation that happens through heat, but also shrinkage. So kind of working out things mm. about shrinkage was, was maths things. Going out to dig a hole in the playground was about maths. So all these things included, we were able to, say, put it into every subject. And then it also gave us the opportunity um, to start commissioning other artists to help us. So we worked with a theatre maker, a dance specialist, a uh, the art teacher was a filmmaker and computer animation person, Duncan, obviously the uh, ceramic artist. So that was all orchestrated and then culminated in a public celebration for friends, family, counsellors, shopkeepers, everybody came to the school. We might talk a little bit later about firing up and um, how the, the decline of ceramic studies in in, um, in schools and educational establishments. You know, if something's in decline, you have to ask the question about whether it's still set in the right framework, or, or people are asking the right questions about it. Is it still is it still something we need in its in its form? Um, so, being able to engage and look at that with other artists, bringing other people into that conversation, you're going to get very different answers. Mm. So for us, that was really important to look at the subject and see its relevance. And there were, you know, there were a lot of courses in the 80s, 1980s, um, where you could you could study a degree in ceramics. Um, there were something like 35 to 40 universities, well, polytechnics then, mm. um, offering a, a single subject um, ceramics degree. Um, that's now shrunk to two. Whoa! So we're in a different we're in a different place. We're in a different environment, and that's simply because, or we think, and having spoken to many people about it, it's the decline in schools that's at the heart of that. Because why would somebody choose that as a subject if they've never touched the material at school? Sure. So it's the decline in arts and design technology and mm. textiles and all of these sort of creative art subjects. But Oak, but Oak Lodge um, at the time as Julie said, were particularly with Daryl Bedford, very courageous in saying, you know, art matters, materials mm. materials matter because our students learn so much through 
tactile responses. Mm. So they were uniquely placed in that instance then to see the benefits of it. And in fact, we raised money for them to install a kiln for the first time and they and Daryl developed the most amazing uh, ceramic department and they won a lot of awards for that. But I think the other thing that really dramatically came out of the work with Oak Lodge was working at a different scale. Mm. So we used, just one example, we used clay as pigment and they decorated the whole of the hall windows. And simply making bigger gestures meant that some of these young people who uh, are, you know, quite marginalised in in many ways, Mm. they could literally take up more space. And from the material point of view, it really was our first foray into putting clay centre stage. And that's what we then went on to do with clay ground, setting the frame, taking large quantities of clay, like tons at a time, into the centre of cities and getting thousands of people making alongside one another. It gave us the opportunity also to um, trial so many different methods about how you engage people. So we investigated in so many ways, but with artists coming in and looking at ceramics for the first time and really getting excited about the process, which is something obviously you learn at at college, um, you learn in school. Um, But it's something where if you haven't touched the material for such a long time or you've forgotten about it, then it it can reignite so many memories and, um, and really just that direct response to the material. But it was great seeing artists excited about the things that a lot of ceramics people might find. You know, it's just the day-to-day stuff. Yeah. But um, one, I'll never forget, um, Brenda Edwards. um, Dance. um, She was at the Royal Ballet, I think. Um, But it was just one thing about the starting the day and actually preparing the clay. And for her, that was enough. She'd seen from just that one little work, we did a couple of days workshopping through various processes. And it was just fantastic to see her just go, yeah, that's it, I'm going to take that movement Mm. about kneading the clay, about wedging the clay, and I'm going to... And she creates this beautiful piece where she built so much trust with the students where they held one of the students at arm's length. So a a row of students held this other students and rolled them back into their bodies. So something, again, that... A, a, a maker who's in ceramics wouldn't necessarily think that that was such an interesting movement. So, no. so that's the cross arts initiatives mm. that took me back to the South Bank, um, working with lots of other artists to kind of re-examine your own practice as well. So, what do you think the material clay is? Uh, the material clay is not one thing. Mm. Um, it's obviously materials that are governed by temperature. Uh, But clay really refers to a group of minerals with certain common characteristics, um, and they're distinguished by the particle size. So we know that that clay, the composition, the crystal structure, has been looked at by material experts by yourself. Mm -hmm. Um, A lot of clay makers, they... They want to know where, obviously, where it comes from, although some students don't. Some students are just <laughs> happy to open a bag of clay and start making. Mm. Um, but at Central St. Martins, where I teach, we, we really investigate the material and we think it's important for them to, to have a real good grounding and, OK, what's this stuff you're going to be making things with or hoping to make things with? Um, so we teach them applied technology. 
Um, we talk about the qualities that it has, um, and it's this sheet-like structure. So straight away, we we explain to them that at, that at microscopic level, the platelets slide. That's that's what's so different about these materials that we group together. Um, and they are classified in lots of different groups. So we've got things like kaolin, smesite, nilite, and chlorite. Um, and then there's groups um, from those. There's also bentonite, which is volcanic, uh, volcanic origin. Um, so it's all these things really that have this ability to slide, to make things with. But then they also go through this transformative process. And that's a word that I might keep, I'm going to try not to use <laughs> it that often, um, because it's both transforming for the individual and, and the material. And that's why I, I think it was so common in schools back in the 50s and 60s. Um, most schools had a pottery department because it, it taught students about how you can change material through heat. Mm. Um, but it's also transformative for them, for them to learn pet things like patience. Um, it's not instant gratification. You have to nurse it through this process, um, through the drying process, then through the firing process. So for anybody, I think, who hasn't touched clay, that's kind of one of the things, one of the challenges is to nurse this thing through these different stages. Mm. And so even on a, on a common level, people will have heard about kaolin about china clay they will have heard about bentonite because it's in things like makeup okay kaolin's obviously in medicines so yes you have all these uses but even even then we know things like ball clays and the reason they're called ball clays it's a very specific clay but it's called a ball clay simply because it was made into a ball to transport it really yeah <laughs> so it's it's quite a simple one and then we have fire clays which are highly plastic so they give plasticity to a body because when you go to buy a bag of clay, that won't have one clay. It won't contain often one clay. Mm. It will be made up of different sorts of clays. So ball clays, china clays, fire clays. Um, fire clays, again, are called fire clay because they're found close to coal seams. All right. So it's the clay next to those. So this slicing of the earth, you're finding different materials. You know, we think of this material that's all over the world. It's ubiquitous. It's all there under the ground. And that's why we we went on this project, Project Clay, um, to get as many international clays as possible because there's no one record of the world's clays. Really? So different artists have collected them, different countries have mm. no ge through geological surveys where clay is, but nobody's kind of ever gone around and collected a whole sample. Until now. Well, <laughs> I would love the arts. <laughs> I would love a grant to go around the world and collect it. But as Julia said, that, that too project, much, really. there's too much. Okay. Um, but also for, for us, Project Clay, we'll talk about it in a bit, mm. but um, it offered lots of other opportunities. Um, I can see as well how, because as you say, each clay in each different area and each country is very, very different. Mm. I can see now why the study of clay and the celebration of clay inherently links then to local communities mm, and absolutely. bringing people together because it is the ground that they all walk on in that particular place. Yeah. And virtually every culture has had some encounter with clay as vessels or uh, figures or fertility um, symbols or uh, pigments for rock painting or, you know, all mm. of those things. And it's it's as old as the earth. So I think when we're doing these huge sculptures, something very visceral happens in people's responses that it is literally the earth 
in the room, as it were. Sure. And millennia old, as old as the earth, but people are making their mark on it today. Mm. And so it's a kind of cooperation with the earth itself. And I think that it speaks to a lot of people. Um, so on that cultural side of it, it, it's not just a kind of inert substance. Mm. It has this great cultural resonance, really. We did a, a large project for pre, prior to the Olympics called the the the, the, the biggest big lop. So it was the biggest learning opportunity on earth. Very grand title, cool. And it was a grand project. It was a fantastic project that took us all over London. But one of the things we started every session with, so we went to eleven schools over two years. Um, was actually the science of the material. Mm. So the students, the the pupils, understood what they were actually handling, what they were dealing with. And when we talked about how long it takes to create this material over millennia, as Julia said, um, it's this weathering action, it's the, ero the erosion of rock, basically, um, in the simplest form. Um, so due to all that weathering, acid rain, tectonic movement, all those things creates all these different clays. Um, the perverse, the slightly perverse thing about ceramic is that within 12 hours, so it's taken millennia to make this stuff, in 12 hours we reverse this whole process and turn it back into a rock-like substance. Mm. Um, and it was this number 573 degrees centigrade, way quartz inversion, where it twists and locks. So this clay has become ceramic then. So children were fascinated by this, mm. this idea that you're... You're kind of changing time in that sense. Reversing time. Yeah, reversing yeah. time. The other thing that's worth saying is that we have a very good relationship with a mineralogy researcher, geochemistry researcher, actually, he's now called, um, Javier Cuadros at the Natural History Museum. And he has established that uh, the plasticity of clay can be affected by the organic content Oh, okay. So the question is, is clay organic or inorganic? And it has an action rather like yeast on uh, on the clay. And uh, we're cooperating with him on a sort of longer term project to actually test the effects. So that's really interesting, I think, for research point of view. Mm, yeah. But it's also almost like an academic coming to something where potters for generations have known that if you dig clay... You, you mature it by leaving it outside so that that bacteria starts to work through the, through the body. And so a, a classic example is, is a potter known as Isaac Button. Um, there's some great footage of him kind of digging clay, putting it into a, um, a clay pit outside, so once he'd got the materials, and letting them weather for over six months to a year. And what the potters found just by using the clay was that... Um, I'm not sure it's a word we used before, but the plasticity. So that malleability mm. um, improves the longer you leave it. But it was thought perhaps that it was temperature and the action of frost and things rather than actual biological ba action. Bacteria and, yeah. Oh, wow. So the potters then sort of experimentally discovered that... It's a folk wisdom. Yeah. yeah. And in fact, some I heard in India um, across generations... Uh, a father will give the a bit of his clay to almost like like a sourdough culture. Oh, okay. Um, you know, start his son's clay pit or something. Yeah. But it it wasn't necessarily known scientifically what that the basis of that. 
until relatively recently, yeah. by the sounds of it. Yeah. Wow, that's fascinating. Well, it, it, it goes along with the story of the pothole. I don't know if you know why a pothole in a road is called a pothole. No, I don't. People often think it's because of the shape, but um, there's evidence um, from magistrate records in the 14th and medieval, medieval times, um, particularly in Stoke, mm. where potters would dig a hole in the road because where they would find water in the road... Often that was an indication that there's really good clay underneath. All right. So the clay, as we know, lines canals. Yeah. Um, if you didn't know that, then you do now. Um, but it's that thing about if it's holding water, then you've got a good dense body, often a good plastic body. So it's not that the the potters would just dig the hole in the road. They would then dig out into the field because they'd know they'd hit a rich seam of, of clay. Right. But what they didn't do was fill the holes back in. <laughs> and so the, and the that's why they were fined. Like the basically. councils of today. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and the cartwheels blended the clay. Ah, oh, okay. Which is the hardest work for a potter. Yeah. Right. So the cartwheels blended the clay. So that's why it was good to pick it up, uh, you know, dig it up in a road. So, yeah, there's lots of folklore about clay mm. and its use and why people use certain clays and how it's come about. So... In a nutshell, then, what do you think the, the aims of the Clay Ground Collective are? It's the exploration of clay wherever it occurs or in whatever form. So that takes us not simply through the making process, but uh, into archaeology, uh, poetry, um, even exploring uh, the presence of clay elsewhere in the solar system. So... Javier Cuadros, who I mentioned earlier, uh, the clay geochemistry researcher at the Natural History Museum, is researching clay on Mars. And some years ago during the World Clay Project, he called me and said, I know your project's about the Earth, but could we include the solar system? <laughs> <laughs> and so he said, yeah, why not? And so he's uh, done articles for us, which you can find on our website about clay on Mars and how they, how the researchers um, get to know through infrared spectroscopy and various other means, the colour and composition and age of the clays on Mars. And, of course, the Curiosity, the NASA rover, has landed in somewhere called Gale Crater uh, deliberately because it's got a high clay content. And if organic life ever existed on Mars, it will be found in clay. That's amazing. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. 
I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. And it's those hidden stories about clay, yeah. I think. But it, it, it really, for me, has been the fascination where it's an invitation to other artists to come and investigate this material. Freshly. Freshly. Yeah. So the idea of, of engaging poet, um, Rachel Longer, poet, um, to go to Stoke for the first time and to go round the factories and meet the people where, you know, the whole culture of ceramics is completely embedded um, because that's how the, the, the kind of town started, the six towns. Um, but by bringing a poet to a place that she hasn't been to before, um, the story, again, it can be looked at afresh, which is what mm. Julia said. It, it's It's that constant, it's a material that offers so many opportunities and that's that for me is the greatest thing and to get other people involved and to look at it as a material so uh we commissioned a, a series of ceramic artists to respond newly to a material that they thought they were familiar with mm. and so one of the approaches again in stoke we uh, scuba dove in a canal and retrieved pieces that had been dropped when the canal boats were being loaded. Oh, wow. And then that material was reincorporated by an artist called David Binns into new material. So it was an opportunity for him to take his experimentation forward and uh, exploration around local distinctiveness and things like that. And when, when Julie says we, actually it was my brother Rob Houston and my niece Alice who got in the canal. I didn't really <laughs> fancy it, but they are trained scuba divers. So, oh, brilliant. So it's a, again, it's an opportunity to involve the family wherever you can <laughs> yeah. to help out if you haven't got those skills. And that, that's the thing, again, about commissioning other people. The fantastic thing is you're working often alongside really skilled and knowledgeable people in completely different disciplines from your own. So that skill sharing mm. and knowledge transfer um, has just been an absolute delight since we set up Clayground. So the the reason that we started all this was, we touched on earlier, this catastrophic decline of uh, hand skills development mm. and uh, design 3D studies in schools and specifically case, clay studies. And uh, so that was really the main motivation and continues the main motivation. But it's also um, taken us into a research track about why do we need these skills? And after we'd done the Oak Lodge school project, we then went on to do a national project with a cross council called Firing Up. And we went to about... To 12 cities, 12 11, cities. 11, 11 universities that still had some kind of ceramic module mm. in a in a multidisciplinary degree, so multi-material mm. degree. To train teachers, those teachers who were left, who had some kind of responsibility for art or weren't necessarily trained in art. So we then did a professional development day, usually in a local museum 
or linking into their own local heritage in some way. And it was they who urged us to really investigate further why on earth do we need to keep making. And that took us down some very interesting routes, notably to neurophysiology, to surgical education, medical education and literacy development. So we connected with experts in those fields and we learned some astonishing things. So uh, from a neurophysiological point of view, uh, Roger Lemon, who's um, here at uh, UCL, he illuminated the fact that there are 10 times as many channels of information going from our hands to our brain as there are in the other direction. So we move to know the world mm. rather than to actually move the world. First and foremost, we we explore with our hands. And across our evolution, clearly the exploration of um, tools and materials has also been uh, closely associated with the development of speech, extension of vocabulary, and thus of learning. You know, how do you pass those skills on from one generation to another? And at Stanford University, we're in touch with a, a professor called Shirley Bryce Heath, who's an expert in literacy development and uh, broader learning. And she's noticed a very sharp decline uh, or in young people's ability to see intricate detail in book illustrations, maps, diagrams. And she associates it with a general decline in society of hand skills development. Um, and so she was very interested to make an alliance with us and uh, share discussion and thinking around this. And then thirdly, we connected with a professor called Roger Kneebone, at, who you've probably come across at Imperial College. And he's a surgical educator, first and foremost. And what he was recognising was some deficits in incoming students around their ability to see. Okay. And what is meant by that is recognition of pattern, ability to translate from 2D diagnostic tools to 3D bodies, ability to differentiate between old flesh, young flesh, in terms of the quality of flesh as a material. If you've never worked with natural materials, during the course of which you have to learn to respect what they can and can't do, you know, the limits of their ability to be stretched or manipulated, then um, it's a long way to go to learn that, to to be a surgeon. And of course, there's a lot of microsurgery. But in order to do microsurgery, you have to imagine yourself, funnily enough, as a scuba diver, perhaps, <laughs> right? within somebody's body. Yeah. And an ophthalmic surgeon we spoke to um, characterised his, his uh, practice in that way. And he, in fact, spoke very eloquently about the, the pencil being his his favourite surgical instrument. Mm. Uh, that's Bruce Noble. Because when you're gripping a pencil, you're gripping your forearms. And it's that that goes embeds in your memory, the process. So you're solving the problem with a pencil, but you're also rehearsing the operation. You're explaining to colleagues you're explaining to the patient mm. so all of those things are determined by hand skills 
And Roger Kneebone um, from Imperial College was was spent two years as the Welcome Trust um, Engagement Fellow. And through that work, he contacted lots of different, um, well, a few, a few craftspeople, particularly, obviously, those people who are used to working with their hands, um, often on, um, you know, handling the material, but in a very specific way and finding a way through a through a material to get to its its quickest kind of final destination if you like um and what roger was interested in was the skill that was embedded that that thing about haptics and how a craftsperson knew exactly the pressure needed to cut something um so he worked with a savile road tailor um he worked with somebody uh, the hairdresser from vidal sassoon top stylist because it's making those cuts, um, particularly if you've had a bad haircut, you'd kind of understand <laughs> that, um, what mood the, the, the hairdresser's in. Um, but really it's about that decision-making, that, that, okay, sketching out, as Julia pointed out, with the, the drawing of an eye surgeon actually rehearsing the operation. Um, I'm really pleased to hear they rehearse. <laughs> but um, it's, it's that thing really that Roger and I were talking about that – um, again, he, he noticed this lack of kind of hand skills, fantastic academically, you know, bright mm. as a button, just mm. incredible. But actually transferring that to your hands, that knowledge you need to do. Um, so Roger and I talked about what would be a good session in ceramics. And through lots of different kind of meanderings, through different techniques and things, we decided on throwing because with wheel throwing, when you throw in a pot, which is something I've had, you know, many years experience with, you're almost pushing or you are pushing the material to the point of collapse quite often because you're trying to get these even thin walls. And for anybody who's thrown a pot, I don't know if you have. Yes, yeah. I have. How did you feel the, doing that? Well, the point of collapse definitely rings, <laughs> rings true for me. <laughs> so, but but that's great in, in one sense that you're pushing the material to its limit. Mm. So what we organised at Central St. Martin's was um, a group of his surgical um, surgical students to come into the department and work with um, first years who'd only had a week throwing. So they'd had a couple of sessions wheel throwing. So we had about 15 um, students in from Imperial working with our first years who'd only had a bit of knowledge mm. and then some more experienced throwers. So there was this kind of interesting triangle, triangulation of, of kind of skill. Mm. Um, and what was great was that the conversation the conversation and talking about pressure and understanding when you lift. So that thing about, um, I don't drive a car, so I've never driven, I've had three goes, hated it. But um, I often talk to students when I'm teaching them about control and pressure, about, um, I don't know what it's called, the cl clutch control, is yep. it? Um, that thing about really feeling when something's happening. Yep. Um, and... With throwing, it's a similar thing. You you get the, you know, the problem is you've got a material in between two hands, um, but it's it's understanding the fingertips and there's so many actions within this and and real nuance to pressure that is really interesting. So he found this f fascinating, and um, yeah, just found it incredible. This investigation about where where he started talking. Yeah, this is like surgery. I've got my hand inside your body and I've got one hand side one hand has opened up this organ and I've mm. got my hand inside that but one of my um one of the memories that I took away from the session was when he was sitting there with because you're using tools as you know 
So mm-hmm. you might be using a needle and a wire um, and a, a, a trimming tool. Um, but the, the moment I found just fantastic was when you could see him in the moment of concentration where he literally thought he was in an operating theatre because instead of reaching for the tool himself, he just held up his hand expecting <laughs> the nurse or the team yeah. to hand him the right tool. That's amazing. So it was just fantastic. And I, I, I witnessed it and just said, Roger, that's classic. And he <laughs> loved that moment. It was this thing where he just put up his hand. So he was completely immersed. Yeah. It's really interesting what you were saying about the idea that using your hands develops lots of other skills, I guess, Mm -hmm. in a person. Mm -hmm. Um, Because in the sciences, you tend to be trained academically. But once you get to a higher level after your undergraduate, you'll then go into a lab. Mm -hmm. And that completely involves using your hands and it also involves communication. Mm -hmm. And so often we see young scientists really struggling Mm -hmm. with basic things in the lab that is to do with their hands Mm -hmm. because it's all there academically they know the theory of it Mm -hmm. but as soon as you ask them to you know add this to that it all Mm -hmm. spills everywhere and you know I include myself in this as well Mm -hmm. um I really identify with that Mm -hmm. uh the roadblock almost that is there between what you know academically but what you can't put into Mm -hmm. practice Mm -hmm. physically I mean I think these uh deficits have arisen by increasing competition within entry to academic courses, particularly medicine, surgery, Mm. possibly chemistry as well. Because the only way really that our culture measures things is all neck up and individual. Yeah. And uh, so the collective, um, collective making, you know, those... And those cliches of teamwork and so on, they're very, very difficult to measure. Mm. And you can end up with a lot of um, very intellectual individuals, but uh, not such good cooperative people. I mean, it's not that's a real generalisation, but I do think one is seeing aspects of that. And really shockingly, when we have these big clay sculptures, the automatic making mode of a great number of people is to make flat things. Oh, really? Yeah, because they have no sense of how to model. And so they are seeing everything on screen. And so they just make flat images. And then they get very frustrated when they can't get them off the table. But um, And you have really little understanding of, with a material like clay, if you want to build high you have to build broad mm. or you have to have an armature, uh, something to hold it up. And so you get a lot of um, you know, frustrated young people because they just don't have that automatic knowledge about, you know, if you've got a floppy material that's a bit like dough in some instances, you can't build it tall without thinking about how the how it's structured, mm. which essentially is sort of engineering questions. Definitely, really. yeah. The way that Playground works is very much orchestrating the invitation and in a way setting the frame and keeping out of the centre of the picture. So we set the frame for the public. And so the invitation for the World Clays Project was dig a kilo of clay wherever you live, work, going, and relay it to London. So this was very much inspired by the Olympics in 20... Well, we started in uh, 2007. 
but um and the first clay that was dug was dug in Tehran by international by Iranian theatre artists. And then it was transported to London, actually in the diplomatic bag. But as it was on its way here, I realised that it needed an import licence. Oh, really? So, well, because of the risk of imported plant pathogens. Okay. So um, we secured one from DEFRA and then each incoming package of clay had to be accompanied by this import licence. But... We And we reached out very much not to ceramic artists, but to people from different walks of life. So because otherwise, you know, if we were just talking to ceramic artists, we would have stayed in the same bubble. And it really captured people's imaginations. And about 80 people um, volunteered to dig clay and bring it to London. Wow. And uh, in fact, the most energetic collector was the director of a steel band based near the Oak Lodge School and uh, called Terry Noel. And in the end, we commissioned some music from uh, some composers, which was played at King's Cross as part of the summer celebration. So that was a sort of paean to, to clay. Brilliant. Well, there's a very tempting lump of clay in the studio. <laughs> there is. <laughs> so if you unwrap the clay... Mm-hmm. And maybe grab what Some, you can hold easily in your hand. Yeah, so something that yeah, fits that's comfortably. Perfect. That's perfect. So it's this is an invitation we often have with people where we're asking them as a level playing field because some people will have experience of clay handling, other people won't. They'll be nervous about what they make, which you might not be, having done some <laughs> wheel throwing. Um, but it, for, for us, it was a, a great way of just levelling the playing field because we're going to ask you to make something behind your back. Oh, okay. So I don't know if you've got the right shirt on for it. but um, I have a very jazzy shirt on. So what we, we there's several things we, we get people to do, but one of the things that we found really successful was if you think back to the first thing you ever made. So this could be in any material. Okay. So we've put you a little bit on the spot without yeah. any any preparation. But it's seeing if you can make an image of that three-dimensionally behind your back. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Yeah? Yeah. As you're thinking about it, obviously you're trying to transfer this without seeing, Mm. which is quite interesting. And, again, people are fascinated because there isn't this kind of when people reveal what they've made – there isn't this thing about, oh, that doesn't really look like anything. No. Because everybody's really proud that they've actually managed to make something <laughs> behind the back um, that looks vaguely like it. And myself, having been involved with clay for over, well, yeah, quite a long time now, for 50, uh, 40 odd years, um, the things I make are, are more or less the same behind my back as somebody who's come to it for the first time. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah, so it, it's a it really interesting leveller. Okay, I think I finished my object. Okay, come on then, Anna, reveal the moment. Okay, it doesn't look like what I thought it did. It's looking like a volcano. <laughs> so, so talk us through it. So I'll I'll describe it first, and then I'll tell you what the object yeah. is. So I've made kind of an almost circular flat plate, and the edge of the flat plate has kind of been raised and folded in it's on like itself. It's like a rolled pie crust. That. Yes, exactly. Nice. And then in the middle there is a volcano-like projection, <laughs> which um, is not supposed to be a volcano. 
So when I was six years old, I did a cross-stitch of a little horse and it was on a cross-stitch sewing ring. So it's a little bit smaller than this, actually. Um, And this, the volcano is supposed to be a horse. (laughs) (laughs) It is, actually. (laughs) Looking closer, I can see. There's the head on that side. Here's the two legs and the tail. (laughs) Yeah, <laughs> yeah. There's the and it's got uh, ears and a nose. Yep. It just looks like it's in sandstone. It's been slightly eroded. That's so it. Quite, yes. Yeah. Well, yeah. Over early, 20 early years. rock art. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But what? Just out of that one moment, you can see that it, it takes you back to a place. Mm. Often, it takes you back to a happy place, a really safe place. Yeah. Um, and it allows those conversations. So we group people together and they share those stories. So if people have been interested, you've already mentioned a few places where they can get involved, but where can they look you up on your website to find all the information? So if uh, they go to www.claygroundcollective.org, that's our website, and there's a tab where you can sign up to our newsletter and blog, and then we're on Instagram and Twitter, and if you just search on Clayground uh, Collective, you'll come across us. And we don't do Facebook. Fair enough. <laughs> enough said <laughs> well excellent thank you so much for coming on Real Talk it's been a pleasure to talk to you both it's and, been great and to meet you, you Anna thank you fantastic. so much fantastic thank you so that was the brilliant Julia and Duncan from the Clayground Collective if you want to read more about their work then check out their book it's called Clay in Common and it's an awesome expansion of all of the themes that we've discussed on this episode as always, you can say hello to the podcast on Twitter. We're at Real Talk. That's R I A L Talk. And there's bonus content from every episode of Real Talk on our website, which is www.realtalk.com. On the page for this episode, you can take a look at a beautiful photo of all the different clays from around the world, which Julia and Duncan described in this episode. And you can also take a look at my not so beautiful behind the back clay masterpiece. That's all for this time. We'll be back with another episode in two weeks. So until then, take care and see you next time on Real Talk. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at UH1.com.